You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blue for me and you. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny July Davis Day. And it's going to be warm by our standards. It'll be slightly above average. The average high temperature in the month of July is 93 degrees. Today, as we record this program on Wednesday, July 7th, to broadcast on July 8th, the high temperature is 94 degrees. So right there about average. But tomorrow, the day of the broadcast, Thursday, July 8th, it's going to be 101 degrees. And we have a short but fairly intense heat wave coming our way. And where you are in the Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin Valley will determine what those high temperatures look like presently. And this has been changing day to day, obviously, as they, you know, as the models get closer to the actual event. They're telling us that in the Davis area, Friday will be 106, Saturday will be 105, Sunday will be 104. Well, at least it's trending downward, right? <laughs> Monday will be 99, and Tuesday will be back to average high of 93 degrees. Night temperatures during that period are going to cool off to the low 60s on those particularly hot days. And then below 60 starting Sunday night, Monday night, 58 degrees and so on. So we've got about a four-day heat wave coming our way. I've been watching these high temperature numbers bounce around over the last few days as this has come into focus as to what it's really going to be like. And it's interesting to check three different sites as I do on the weather service. I live near Dixon. Lois lives in the southern part of Davis. And then there's Davis itself. And those are three different zip codes. So if you go to the National Weather Service, you can search for weather stations by zip code. And this is a classic mm -hmm. example right now of how the closer we get to the coast, the more moderate those temperatures predicted are. So we're going to see enough coastal influence, even Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that we're not going to be quite as miserable as folks on the east side of the valley or up in the northern part of the Sacramento Valley where it's always hot. So for example, Saturday, which is supposed to be 106 in Davis, is only going to be 100 in Dixon. And Dixon is only 12 miles from Davis. Now, that big difference is the coastal influence that makes, we like to say, our side of the valley more livable. Uh, boy, a lot of questions have come up, though, with this predicted heat wave and, of course, heat in the news in other parts of the country throughout the last seven to ten days. Uh, all over the Facebook groups and next door and places, people worried about what to do about their tomatoes and their peaches and things like that. So it is hot. I have, I have a weather question for you, Don. Okay. So every time when we go to record this, I go and look and see what questions have arrived and what things Don has put in there for topics for us for the show to talk about. And today there was a link, I clicked on it, and I came across the most incredibly beautiful, colorful maps of the United States. Yes. <laughs> but it says El Nino temperature anomalies, El Nino precipitation anomalies. Now, first question is, is this an El Nino year, a La Nina year? What the heck difference is it anyway? 
Uh, we've just come out of a couple of years of La Nina. This refers to uh, longtime listeners may remember when we would go into this in great detail because there is a strong correlation between El Nino in particular and higher rainfall in the Northern California, Sacramento Valley, and especially the North Coast. There's a strong correlation with La Nina, which is the cooler ocean temperature phase, with drought, particularly in the American Southwest, but also often with Northern, Central and Northern California. Certainly, the correlation with this La Nina that we're exiting at the moment has been strong drought, to put it mildly. Uh, it's, the entire state of California is in severe drought, and of course, the American Southwest, the reservoir levels are, are startlingly low. Uh, we have just exited, officially exited La Nina. That's the lower temperature ocean condition, lower, lower than average temperatures in the Eastern Pacific, which they can monitor by a whole bunch of methods. My father was actually involved in that back in the 60s and 70s when he worked as an oceanographer. They have more sophisticated satellite imagery that they use now to monitor the changing temperatures of the Eastern Pacific, which is where our storms originate. Uh, and so we are just now, as of last month's blog on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration ENSO site, got all that, <laughs> or NOAA's El Nino site, we've left La Nina. Okay, that's good news, right? That means you know, we're moving out of a typical drought pattern. Well, here's the bad news about that. It's a very common phenomenon with La Nina, in fact, as common as not, that there's a double dip. And sometime in the fall, we go back into a second year of La Nina, which typically correlates with a second year of low rainfall, which means the drought continues. Or we could stay in the present condition, which is neutral, that is to say neither above nor below average. There's not any real strong correlation with high or low rainfall in that situation, where we could gradually trend back towards El Nino, but looking at their site, their blog, they consider there's only about a 10% chance of that happening. El Nino would be good news at this point, anywhere in Northern California, Central California. I'm not saying it causes the rainfall, the correlation really strongly is with what we call these atmospheric river storms that, that just come in, pack a punch, bring a couple inches at a time. The number of those seems to be our strongest indicator of how much rainfall we're going to finish up the rainfall year with. But there's this definite correlation between high rainfall and strong El Nino and low rainfall and strong La Nina. We're in between. We're in the least predictable phase of the Southern Oscillation. We'll know better in, let's say, two months when they can tell whether they're trending back down, back towards La Nina, or up, staying in between, or going towards El Nino. So this has profound implications for water management throughout the West, and you can imagine that everybody involved in the whole process of hydrology for California, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, you know, all of us are looking very closely at what's happening to those ocean temperatures in the Eastern Pacific. Right now, we're in between, or as they jokingly like to call it, La Nada. La Nada? Yeah. <laughs> I don't you know. It's not La Nina. It's La Nada. Nada means nothing in Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, we got a lot of questions. Let's do one of those public oh. service announcement things first. First of all, KDRT LP. LP stands for low power. KDRT is a non-commercial community radio. That means we're public radio, which means we rely entirely on contributions from listeners like you and me and Lois and everyone else to keep our operating costs covered. And if you like what you hear, if you like the Davis Garden Show, if you just like the idea of public radio, head to kdrt.org, that's cater.org, and click on the support button. While you're there, you'll find all kinds of great programming. Lois, name a show. 
I want to talk about Hawaii, Don. I want to go to Hawaii, but I can't right now. So the one thing I can do is I can listen to Beth Post for two hours of Hawaiian stuff. And guess what? It's right immediately after our garden show on Thursdays. That's correct. Beth has been doing the Mele o Hawaii, which is Hawaiian music. And she's. this isn't just, you know cocktail. Well. This isn't music. This, this is culture. This is all about the culture. She features the unique yeah. sounds of Hawaiian music from the early icons of the island music to today's innovators, exploring the styles, the history of the genre, and the revered songs and performers. That is live Thursdays from 1 to 3 p.m. and replays on Saturdays 10 a.m. to noon. For more information or to click on the RSS feed or listen to the archive there, you can just go to kdrt.org and click on the program guide. You guys sent all kinds of questions, so we're going to cover oh. some of Lois's so, previous questions and a bunch of the ones you all sent to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. Okay, so well, the first one is that we had gotten a, a question about a privacy screen with an Italian cypress, and I ask on the air to please... Um, send us more information. So here's what she said. Um, I, I am in zone 9B. Yep. That's a USDA zone, hardiness zone, and sunset zone 15. And she says, Lois, great job on pronouncing my name. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad I got it all right. Um, so here's the photos that she sent us of a, a cypress. It's probably 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, very old. Yeah. And it's right next to a fence. Yeah, so it's um, it's not is it's not terribly wide. I'd guess that it, that's probably looking at the photo, probably about six feet wide or something like that. Yeah, this is a case. It looks like it's been topped though, doesn't it, Don? Yes, it definitely does. So this is a case where Italian cypresses were planted very close together to make essentially a wall of coniferous foliage. Those of you who live in rainier climates, you're used to this kind of thing. You, you'll see great big conifer hedges everywhere. We don't have that many conifers that look great in our hot, dry summer valley conditions. The one that does grow incredibly well here is the Italian cypress, which will grow to 40 to 50 feet tall, mm -hmm. live for decades, if not centuries. They're very long lived, extremely drought tolerant. And in my opinion, look best if they're planted to accentuate their natural growth habit, not planted in a straight row and clipped like a hedge. Because clipped like a hedge, it becomes a pretty, kind of an ongoing thing. It is in the case of the picture, which is great, by the way, thank you very much, clearly making a nice wall of privacy for a zone about four, four cypresses wide. And uh, it's been topped somewhere along the line or else it would be you know, probably way overbearing to the neighbors. So uh, yeah, I kind of agree that bring, taking them out is, is not going to be a big loss in terms of aesthetics, nor particularly does it have to be a big loss in terms of privacy. Italian cypresses are very drought tolerant. So if you wanted to focus on drought tolerant options, if you happen to like that conifer look, but don't want something as big as the Italian cypress, there's a number of junipers that do basically the same thing. The old Western garden books would sort junipers by their growth habit, and you had ground-hugging types and low-spreading types and great big spreading types, and then a whole bunch that are very what we call fastidiate, which is just a term that means upright and narrow. So the Italian columnar. Well, not quite columnar, but yeah, close. I mean, columnar is columnar, and then there's fastidiate, which is a little wider, but basically just refers to strongly upright growth habit. And so Italian cypresses are the classic in that regard, but these, there's a bunch of junipers like Skyrocket and some other names that have a similar 
slightly more gumdrop shape to them, but accomplished much the same. But she also had the added factor of animals climbing around in these things and bothering her neighbor. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have, uh, so uh, this picture is wonderful. Mm-hmm. If this were my yard and I had the raccoon problem, what I would probably do is I would start at the bottom where the trunks are and I'd cut off eh, a foot of, of branches. And that the, when you cut the branch at the bottom though, it's gonna take off a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah. I'm trimming it back so that I can actually see the stems. And I keep doing that up to at least knee high and that would take off a bunch of stuff. And then I could see what was in there. And then what I would probably do is I would trim, I would prune the branches as we go up so that there are fewer of them. It's a little bit more open and airy. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if, you, if you take a branch and you cut it halfway out, it just makes a stub. It looks ugly. So I would either leave it or take the whole branch off. But then as I worked my way up and I got to the top of the fence, I'd see if I had gotten rid of the animal nesting sites. Because once you get in there, you'll be able to see that really easily. And they aren't going to be there peering at you because as soon as you start working, they're leaving. You hope. (laughs) Well, yeah. And if not, you stand back and yell at them and they leave. You'll find out very quickly. Yes. Okay. What you're suggesting though is you're suggesting. And and hold on. Now, if it doesn't look good, you can always take it out. That was what she was planning to do from the start. So (laughs) you could work with the existing cypresses if you want. And yes, pruning them up and thinning them out to make it a little, make, make those raccoons work for their climb. Uh, I don't know that raccoons are the only animals that were in question here. When you have dense overgrowth like that, it is what we call in the wildlife management business, habitat. habitat. <laughs> so, so what you're doing, what you just suggested, would, would make the habitat less appealing to many types yeah. of animals. Now, this is assuming that she wants to keep them. I do think that pruning them up and topping them down ultimately is going to lead to a pretty strange-looking plant. Part of that is my prejudice of looking at the plant, knowing what it could be, and then mm-hmm. see what it's being turned into. And that's just one of those things that I have a little trouble getting over. So what you're <laughs> going to do here is, uh, is you are planning to take them out. So we'll operate on that assumption. But Lois has given you one possibility. You know, if it were mine, I'd probably do some thinning out there and then plant a clematis behind them and let it climb up into them and have the Italian cypress become basically a trellis for cool. Yeah, that's yeah, that's clematis. it. But I don't yeah. think that will reduce the, uh, the habitat issue particularly. Actually, I think it will. I really do. Good, if you good. start thinning that stuff, it's not going to have, it's not going to be an enclosed room in there, which is what they've got right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I went in to take out an Italian Cypress back when we had a landscaping crew and it wasn't that big. It was only 20 feet or so tall, even still it turned into a bigger job than I thought it was going to be. But we, of course, we drop it down in pieces. I was not, we weren't arborist type work, but we were landscapers and we felt okay with doing that. But I did it personally. Got up there on a ladder, fired up the chainsaw and realized that I was just about to cut through a blue jay nest because it was brought to my attention by the Jays, which were extremely angry about what I was doing. And um, we brought this to the attention of the homeowner who decided for the time being they would leave the nest in place. Um, One time I went out to do some pruning on a tree in my orchard and started to cut in and the tree hissed at me. Yes, (laughs) hissed at me. And I looked Uh all around. I looked up and down. I looked to see what could possibly have made- In the hole. It's an owl. (laughs) No, actually no, it was a bat. Uh, very, 
firmly nestled down in the branch angle that I was just about to cut was a bat. And so I looked at the bat, which was now awake during the daytime, had been asleep. And the bat looked at me and I said, you win. And I went off to do something else <laughs> but in general. And I, I bet if you came back half an hour later, that bat would be gone. I just waited a couple of days and you were correct. It was yeah. gone. So I decided that wasn't a safe place to be because of large stumbling bipeds with sharp implements. Uh, <laughs> the question that was asked was first cutting down and, and removing the stumps versus uh, you know, just letting them rot in place in general. My strong preference is to let stumps and roots decay in place. That's just better for the soil overall. What you'd have to get into if you wanted to remove them would be digging them out, which would be multiple hours of labor per stump, or grinding them out, which leads to separate issues that I think we talked about last week, of all that ground up stuff and how you deal with that. And then you've disrupted the soil substantially, and you have to you still have to move over to plant anyway. You, the grinders can't take out every bit of stump, root, whatever. So you are probably probably going to have to move forward based on the picture or back closer to the fence if you do a vine, which is an option, and just start excavating the soil after you've soaked it down for a couple of hours. Just start excavating to see how many roots are in your way. You can cut through them since you've cut down the tree that they were supporting. You can just chop them out of your way where you're working and replant around the stumps. That's always my preference if possible. There are cases where people feel the need to grind a stump. Aesthetic, aesthetically is the most common reason, honestly, but uh, it's better for the soil in general if you can leave the stumps, let them decay naturally, and plant as nearby as you can. So two, two comments on this. One is uh, when you cut down the stump and leave it decay naturally, um, that does mean that you have run the risk of re-sprouting. Now, some chum trees re-sprout. I know that my crab apples did, but yeah. the cypress wouldn't re-sprout, would it? No, no, and that's an important thing to know if you're listening to us. If you're chopping down a tree of heaven, it's going to re-sprout. <laughs> yeah. if you you're going to have crab, 50 trees of heaven. Oh, yeah. If you're chopping down a crab apple, pretty not good chance it will not only re-sprout right at the stump, but also some of the root system will come back up. If you For 20 down, years. Flowering plums, flowering cherries, any of that group as well. Any conifer uh, that we deal with here, junipers, cypresses, things like that, you cut it down, that's that. You're done. You don't have to worry about killing any latent buds or anything. So they'll just decay at their own pace. As to what okay. to replace it with, there's... there's Wait, uh, sorry, Two questions, Don. Yes. Okay, so you got the stump. Now, I notice in her picture that a little bit further down the fence, there's a lattice just sort of leaning on the fence there. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking if you took that lattice, moved it, to, once you take out the, the evergreen, yep. and you, you moved it to where it is and then bolted it to the fence, the lattice would be half again as tall as the fence, and you could plant a vine up there. You'd have instant screen. Yeah, very commonly we're helping people select screening for narrow yards or places where they're limited for space and they don't necessarily want a vine to do the whole thing. So what we suggest is rather than a row of things, plant one or two shrubs of something that's amenable to pruning. I have really good examples. And this is why we needed to know your zone. In zone nine and 10, there's a whole lot of broadleaf evergreen shrubs, Xylosma, Pittosporum, Italian buckthorn. If you want to do a native, you can do some of the Ceanothus or even some of the larger manzanitas if you're very patient. These are, these are evergreen plants that will get up and give the privacy. In the case of the non-native ones, they take very well to pruning. You can shape them up like little trees. You can clip them like a 
a classic hedge. You can just let them grow naturally to the height they want and then top them and keep them that size. So these are plants that would be more natural looking than the cypress anyway, but you don't need a row of them. You need to put them strategically where the five to six foot spread that they ultimately will have will give you the privacy you're after. You may want some privacy faster than that. So what Lois is suggesting with a lattice on the fence or a fence extension, whatever is legal in your condominium complex or your particular municipality, you should probably check with your homeowners association and the city public works department, city planning staff, I should say about both of those issues. How high above the regular fence can you put a fence extension? Can you even do that in a condominium complex? And then you can plant some kind of reasonably fast growing vine up there. It could be deciduous or evergreen, depending on whether you need privacy all year or whether it's okay that you have some, you know, some see-through effect in the winter time because you're not really out there. And there's lots and lots of vines to choose from. Just don't choose something that's going to become a lot of work for you and your neighbors. And there's, there's so many possibilities that that's a whole nother conversation. But instead of a straight row of something, you in that span could do two xylosma or two to three Italian buckthorn or something like that, or one upright ceanothus and a xylosma with it. Nice combination with the shiny foliage uh, against the darker leaf of the ceanothus and so forth. There's, there's a lot of possibilities there. And then you can make sure that little insurance of the next three to five years of privacy is provided by the vine on the fence behind it. And there's, again, so many choices there that will just tell you, don't plant something you'll regret. <laughs> Okay, so uh, a couple of things. Because in this situation you have an animal issue, be careful about what you choose. So if you choose xylosma, mm -hmm. you're going to have to keep it pruned thin. In other words, be between you and the fence, it has to be not much space because xylosma is a wonderful habitat bush. Um, same with any of the other bushes that if they get if they get dense enough and the right size and shape, you may have the same problem. The other thing is I'm noticing in the picture that fence, and that fence is a trail that your wildlife is following all the time. And I, I and just from what you're saying, we know that's happening. Um, so if you're gonna put an extension or a lattice or something, if, if a raccoon comes along down its normal trail and suddenly there's this thing in the way, well, what's it going to do? Oh, is it going to climb over? It's going to rip it off. It's going to climb on it and break it, yep. whatever. So think about what it is that you're setting up for the animals. And it may be that before you get to that lattice part, you may want to put a cross piece across the trail, which is the top of your fence, so that the animals aren't going to destroy whatever you put up there. At so least, you can't yeah. use something like like bird netting, no, and that wouldn't no. work because no, it would be destroyed instantly. And you don't want something that you're going to leave wide. Yeah, and you don't want the, the lighter lattice materials. You need something substantial, and, and bear in mind you're probably probably going to take it out in three to five years because the shrubs will be up there and, and taking care of it. Uh, when someone, one of my customers had a wildlife specialist give a, a consultation on his property because there was some concern about tree rats or roof rats, the gentleman walked around the yard. First thing he did was just walk along the top runner of the fence, checking very carefully to see if there are any droppings there because those fence runners are classic freeways. Mm -hmm. And his yep. suggestion then, and it's one I've heard then and, and elsewise, is to prune things away so it's not an easy freeway. He, I actually had one commercial pest control uh, person suggest putting carpet tacking on the upper part of the fence. You know, you can buy this at your local hardware, do it your uh, home improvement chain. Carpet tacking, point, point up along the top of the fence just to break up the pattern. Myself, I'd probably just plant a nice big thorny climbing rose there. 
and just spread that out. I'd get some big one like Bell of Portugal or something that grows 20 to 30 feet. I'd spread those big thorny canes down and I'd secure them real, attach them real well to the fence. That should take care of that problem and give you some beautiful flowers on top of it. So you've got a lot of options there. You got a kind of a Mediterranean look. So I would look at some of the lower water plants. And for those of you in our similar climate zone, and, and this listener is, redwoodbarn.com, my business website, one of the most popular pages is just called Hedges and Screens. And it lists the whole range, I think it's 11 pages, of uh, different plants that you can use for privacy hedges. They aren't, it's across the spectrum. It ranges from bamboo on the one end to very tight uh, native plants on the other, which could live without irrigation once established. I do generally suggest when I possibly can, that you'd use a mix of species as you seek privacy rather than one straight row of one single plant. So I hope that helps and we really appreciate the picture. And for those who have questions, just keeping in mind, at least tell us where you are so that if I'm recommending Xylosma and you turn out to be in USDA zone five, you probably won't find it in your garden center there. <laughs> so. and, and also the, the fact that we're talking about animals yeah. here is, is an important fact. In other words, that, that fence looks like it would be a lovely place to espalier, espalier excuse me, a pear tree. Well, no, you don't want anything with fruit <laughs> next to an animal path. It really a, is not a good idea. Although a pyracantha, which is closely related, they're the pyra. Yeah. Pyra means fire, cantha means thorn. There we go. What a pyracantha is fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we're getting a little off topic here. Right. Um, but I hope that we ans answered your question well enough that you'll be able to make some, some decisions and choices. And we'd love to know what you finally decide to do and what you decide to plant there and stuff like that. So, you know, if you feel like giving us a report later, we'd love to hear from you. If you need advice on the thorniest climbing roses around, I've got a whole list of them. <laughs> Are they, is that on your website, Don, the thorniest rose? No, but I think, that's a, I, I think I will come up with that list. Yes, roses, roses for privacy. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> well. Next question. Okay, let's move on to, I have a, I have a question that I brought. And all right, so here we go. I know that plants like hollyhocks make seed, they grow here, they grow well here. Oh, yeah. They make seeds. <laughs> yes. And as the season progresses, the, the plant keeps growing taller and flowering at the top, and then whatever flower turns into seeds. So you end up with this huge stalk. Sometimes it's like eight feet tall. Yeah. And from the bottom on the up, you have uh, cured final seeds through green seeds through flowers so i i went to my friend's house i got a whole bunch of hollyhock seeds i think they're wonderful now i'm trying to figure out on my own how to handle seeds of plants in general and so here's my thinking if i figure out where it grew and what its natural pattern was then maybe i could mimic that and in hollyhocks, they grow in areas where it's, it's basically dry in the summer uh, or wet in the summer, depends on where you are. But then the seeds fall down to the ground and you get more hollyhocks. So my thinking was I should take these dry seeds, leave them in a paper bag until fall when it's just going to start raining, if it does, I hope it does, and then scatter them out just as it rains so that they would have the best chance of, of surviving. 
And my thinking was, if I put them out now, when it's dry and they aren't going to sprout right away, they'll maybe dry up and die, or or maybe some some critters will get them, or maybe I'm you know just feeding the wildlife. All the, so, all those things is that a logical way to look at seeds, Don? Yes, it also depends on what uh, facilities you have for starting the seeds and what kind of germination percentage matters to you. So, I'm going to sprinkle them on the ground. I'm not going to start separate yeah, so, pots and 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 do that. So speaking of hollyhock, just knowing its life cycle, growth cycle, it's a biennial. That's the one group of flowers that confuses people. It grows one year and blooms the next year, which in our case means you can plant it anytime, spring, summer, or fall. You'll get a nice plant. If you do it spring, summer, or early fall, you'll have to water. You'll have to water the seeds in order to get them to sprout, and you'll have to water the seedlings in order to get them big and robust. You can, in fact, plant hollyhocks here, USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zone 14, in the fall of the beginning of the rainy season because the soil is still quite warm when the first rains come typically. The seeds will germinate and uh, they'll make a little rosette plant and that plant will kind of sit there during the winter. It'll build up considerably as we get into February, March, April, and they'll have a plant that's got several months lead start on the bloom. That's the big evolution, evolutionary adaptation of a biennial is a plant that stored energy, made a whole bunch of growing points, a whole bunch of blooming points going into the season when it will start to bloom as things around it are waning. And so the biennial growth habit is an advantage to a plant that it can bloom up taller than the competition, because you're right, they can go up to eight feet tall, and it can bloom later than the competition because it's rooted down deeper, tapping into what we hope will be winter moisture. And so hollyhocks can naturalize here. As many one, anyone who's planted them in a garden that's even slightly irrigated knows they can pop up here, there, and everywhere. If you took all those hundreds of hollyhock seeds and just threw <laughs> them out in your landscape at any given time of year, some of them would come up somewhere. And some of them might come up in a place where you want them, some of them maybe where you don't. Well, they're very recognizable. I really like things like that. They just reseed themselves. We've talked about nigella, borage, um, uh, larkspur. I've got money plant, the lunaria, doing that on my property. California poppies. They'll scatter their own seed. So that's one thing to look at. When would they naturally scatter their own seed? But you may only be getting 1% or 2% germination. That may be it's enough. It's fine with me if I've got hundreds of seeds. Exactly. It's fine with me. <laughs> right. So for an average gardener, if you've got a big, you know, if you've gathered a bunch of poppy seed pods or hollyhock seed pods, and you've got hundreds of seeds, just scatter them roughly where you want them pretty much any time. If you get 1% or 2% germination, you'll have what you're after. If you are, on the other hand, let's say a nursery owner, and you want mm -hmm. to have, you've bought a particularly cool hollyhock variety like Black Watchman, which is this dark purple, black flowered one, and you want to grow them to sell, 1% germination doesn't seem like a very good investment in your seed purchase. You probably want closer to 100% germination. You'd be satisfied with 70 or 80%. So you are going to take them and plant them in pots or flats six to eight weeks before your customer would be buying them to plant them out in the garden. So you'll be starting them in pots July or August in order to have nice, healthy six packs or single plants for people to plant out in their garden in September, October, November. That's here in California. Those of you listening, places where it actually snows and stuff, well, you know, you'll have to adjust your cycle accordingly. So it really depends on your facilities and what it is you're growing. Um, and this gets to the more general topic of knowing what a particular seed wants. We do this all the time. And I've been doing this since before I even was in the nursery business. When I worked in a botanical conservatory, we would receive packages 
from other botanical conservatories around the world. We had sent them letters saying, we see you have the following plants in your accession. We would be interested in seeds of any of these if they ever happen to be available. It's one of most, my favorite things to do and I worked in the botany department, greenhouses here at, at UC Davis. Write off a letter to some botanical garden in India and uh, would send them a list and just say thank you very much for your consideration. Six months later, nine months later, in would roll a package with no, no warning, and there would be all these plants with botanical names, and this is in days before the internet. So we would pull out our, our books of propagation information, we'd pull out Hortus, we'd pull out every one of those big reference books that anybody from the 70s and 80s and 90s remembers, and we'd start looking up the individual plants if we could. And if we couldn't figure out exactly what they were and whether they had special germination requirements, we would guess. And what it came down to was a couple of things that certain plants always need or else they just won't germinate well. And that is scarification, stratification are the two big ones that you look into. Uh, those are two that certain plants need or else they just won't sprout. And scarification is where you scarify the seed, which just means you disrupt the seed coat somehow. You take a scratch it. Scratch it, yeah, scarify it. You take a file, uh, sandpaper, you soak it in a weak acid solution, you pour boiling water on it, you pour hot water on it, you just soak it in regular water for a few hours. All you're trying to do is soften the seed coat or it simply won't sprout. You could make an educated guess about whether a plant is likely to need that. Fire is a very common method of scarifying seed. Lupins in California bloom beautifully after wildfires because the fast-moving grass fire has been fast enough moving that it doesn't incinerate the seed, but hot enough that it just breaks the seed coat. So it's traditional here when we've had grass fires to have a beautiful carpet of lupins the next spring. If you're trying to grow lupins, you don't need fire. <laughs> you can use a file. You can use sandpaper. You can soak them in water. You can do anything of the ones we mentioned. We, when I worked in that the botanical garden, we would soak them in a weak acid solution, you know, 5% hydrochloric acid or something like that. Or a more common one is just put them in a bowl, bring water to a boil, pour the very hot water on them, let them sit overnight. That would work. So that's scarification. That's easy. You're just basically making it sprout faster or at all by disrupting the seed coat. Stratification is the one you need to know about. If you're growing woody plants from temperate zones, okay, woody plant, shrub, tree, things like that, from temperate zones, meaning like say North America, north of the subtropics is a good example of a temperate zone. Michigan is a temperate zone. Uh, Connecticut, temperate sounds mild. We don't mean mild. <laughs> okay, we mean a region is milder than the Arctic, so that's what makes it a temperate zone. And these are plants that typically would fall on the ground from a tree and lie on the ground, and if they sprouted in the summer, early fall, the seedlings would be killed by winter cold. So they've evolved this mechanism of the seed having to, having to go through a process of entering and coming out of dormancy before it will sprout. So to stratify a seed, you simply, well, the easy way is just put it in a pot in October, stick it outside somewhere where it gets rained on in our climate, and that gets cold enough and it comes up in the spring. But a faster way and a more orderly way to do it is to take that seed, put it into some kind of a medium like vermiculite and peat moss or something, as if you're planting it, and put it in the refrigerator, not the freezer, the refrigerator for a certain number of weeks. And that certain number of weeks you can now find by Googling it, but we'd be looking in the old propagation handbooks, and it varied from one plant to another. But typically it was anywhere from six to 10 weeks at refrigerator temperature. You would then take it out of the refrigerator, put it in your greenhouse, hey presto, the whole thing would start sprouting. Whereas if you just did it without that, they wouldn't, you wouldn't get anywhere near the germination percentage. So those are the two main ones. Scarification, so, 
stratification. You just kind of have to look it up for one plant or another. So if I stratify, can't I, I mean, you're, you're talking about stratification when it's in the pot. Why can't I just put the seeds in the refrigerator? That apparently doesn't work. They need the moisture. They need the conditions as if they were going to sprout, at least so I'm told. Well, but the refrigerator is a great place to store your seeds anyway. So, I mean, that's not a bad plant, not the freezer, the refrigerator. Some seeds are actually kept in, in the freezer. But uh, it, what we did find, taking classes in plant propagation, looking up resources on it, there's no consistent overriding theory of this propagation. It's really trial and error, or what we would call empirical research. <laughs> trying or looking at where it lived and trying yeah. to replicate those conditions. And if we didn't know, and this was commonly the case, we'd get in a batch of seeds of some tropical tree or something. And, and tropical trees typically don't require stratification, but they might require scarification. I mean, I begin to know after a while, if it's in the legume family or the pea or bean family, pretty high likelihood you need to scarify the seeds. If it's from a, a, a deciduous forest, it probably is going to need stratification and so on. You can make some guesses like where they're from and what their climate ranges. Those are the starting point. If we didn't know, we would put some seeds in regular medium on a warm bench because some things required bottom heat. We'd put some on the mist bench, which required, gave constant moisture. And I'll get back to that one in a moment. And we put some in the refrigerator in the planting medium and we'd mark the calendar or put it you know, right on there when it had been put in. We'd take them out of there after the six to 12 weeks and just set them right out in the regular greenhouse. Now the warm, the mist bench raises one other issue, which is the and gardeners run into this one all the time. Inhibitors in the seed coat. This is a brilliant adaptation. These plants have outfoxed nature. <laughs> there are things in the seed coat of certain plants that suppress germination for weeks. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The, the seeds have to germinate. Why are they suppressing right. germination? Again, if they come up right before freezing weather, the seedlings would be destroyed. So you can see how this kind of natural selection would occur where the plant has any kind of inhibitor that blocks germination will get a lot of seeds through the winter in the seed form oh. and then they come up as soon as the freezing weather is passed in the spring so obviously that's a pretty straightforward adaptation that some plants have that but how do you get rid of the inhibitor in the spring well the best known examples of seeds with inhibitors in the seed coat are carrots and parsley when home gardeners plant parsley the old saying was it has to go to the devil and back before it sprouts which means about six weeks before it'll even start to germinate same thing with carrots, four to six weeks before they even start to germinate, unless you soak the seed in warm or cold or hot water <laughs> and then drain that water off and you've removed some of the inhibitor. If you really want to see a miraculous leaching of the inhibitors, put the seed under a mist bench. A mist bench is a, a propagation section of a greenhouse where there's a mist going over the seedling or cutting trays for 30 seconds every five minutes around the clock. And it's just constant. So it's just washing them, constantly constant, washing them. Constantly washing them. And it, it is so constant that it's too often for a fungus to take hold. So you don't have wow. a problem with water molds. And it also leaches out the inhibitor that's in the seed coat. Uh, the drawback is it makes a lot of water. <laughs> it has to run off somewhere. So the greenhouse has to drain properly. But mist benches are miraculous for some of these things. We would find that one of those three putting out the regular greenhouse, putting on the warm bench, putting on the mist bench was likely to work best for a particular species. And that's where you start finding those books that just give you all kinds of information. If you're growing flowers, for example, Harris Seed Company sells seeds to lots of commercial growers. 
And so there's a wealth of information in their catalog and on their website and even on the seed packet when you get it. So I was receiving seed packets this spring where they would tell me this seed needs light to germinate. What does that tell you? Hey, California poppy. You planted it on the top of the soil, not right. underneath the soil because it has to germinate in the sun. It'll just lie there under the soil waiting. And uh, for oh. when you're doing a seed like that in a greenhouse, that's a little tricky because if it's lying on top, it's going to get dislodged if you water too rapidly or too hard. So typically what you do is you plant them in a, in a medium, you press them in, you don't cover them. And then what I do is I cover that seed tray with saran wrap to keep the moisture mm -hmm. up until they sprout. And when I do that with a seed that needs light to germinate, in a room that's being kept at about 70 degrees with bottom heat under the tray, I'll get germination in five to seven days. Uh, yeah. And that works really well. And then you, you have to be very careful how you water those seedlings because they're rooting in from above into the soil. So they're vulnerable. That's why you keep that saran wrap or a sheet of glass or something over the tray. But if you buy your seeds from companies that are geared towards growers, you'll get that information, this temperature range, this stratification, this scarification, and so forth. So it's a matter of looking it up from one to another. But if you don't care that much about the percentage of germination, and it's something that has a high volume of seed production, California poppies, portulaca, cosmos, marigolds, um, um, and in particular, the one that you're dealing with. Hollyhocks. You get each spike has several hundred seeds that are scattering themselves in your yard, and you're only getting four or five seedlings, but that's enough for a lot of people for hollyhocks, then you're fine just scattering them where they're going to grow. So um, of the seeds that I bought, I, have, I've, I got the hollyhock seeds from a friend, then I bought packets of Love in a Mist, Cosmos, and these beautiful yellow nasturtiums. Yeah. And yeah. the nasturtiums I know I can plant out. I'm going to put them in the shade next to the sidewalk so that it's really pretty when people look at the bushes and under the bushes there's these beautiful yeah. nasturtiums. Yeah. I think that they, they can get planted any time. Um, and they should they should do well there and keep going and keep keep reproducing themselves. Is that right with nasturtiums? Well, it depends on where people are listening. In coastal areas, they can become practically a weed because the plant never dies back and they reseed. And so my recollection of them from coastal parts of Southern California was that once you planted nasturtiums, they would trail all over the place and show up <laughs> wherever they wanted to seed, which is fine. It's, it's, again, a very recognizable seedling. So it's the kind of thing where they come up in a place you don't want them. One second with a hoe takes care of that problem. Here in the Sacramento Valley, it's hot in the summer. My nasturtiums were looking great until that heat wave we had three weeks ago. Then the foliage kind of toasted even in partial shade and they're coming back now so they they tend to look a little rough in the summer and they freeze back a little in the winter but they look great in the spring and fall and yes you pretty much once i've planted them unless we get below about 28 degrees i find they do come back very well from the winter cold as well the cosmos and, is and the, i can plant them now can't i the yeah. nasturtiums yeah that's okay. a play. there's certain there's certain seeds you can plant anytime sweet alyssum right. <laughs> another one cosmos, mm -hmm. cosmos loves heat my cosmos is just starting to bloom, but it, and it's July. You could certainly plant some cosmos seed in a sunny spot right now, and you'll get great bloom on that in September and October. And it continues right up till frost. And then the other thing is whether or not you need to save that seed and, and you know, carefully start new plants. My experience with cosmos and marigolds and sunflowers and borage and nigella and larkspur and probably a half dozen other plants, is you don't really need to do that. If you have any open soil areas, then they'll take care of themselves. And Johnny Jump Ups. That's the last one that I'm, that I'm putting out now. Now, that's an interesting one. Do I wait on those? I wait on those, don't I? 
Johnny jump ups are viola, they're viola tricolor. Uh, in our climate, violas and pansies are cool season preferring annuals for us. They're not a true annual, they are short-lived perennials. And I've seen some companies sell them as perennials. Uh, the Johnny Jump Up, which is the little flowered one that most, most people recognize, looks kind of like a wild variant of a pansy, will last well into the summer here, much longer than pansies do, and start up again in the fall pretty quickly and will reseed itself. So it's not only, you know, can be functional as a perennial, it can be a naturalizing annual. And that's a term we use to indicate a plant that tends to reseed readily on its own, something which naturalizes. Okay, and I'll plant those in the fall, not now. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's my questions regarding seeds. And I really appreciate this answer because seeding in the ground is, is so much different than yeah. Yeah. raising plants in pots, which is what I usually do. Well, most so people, if you if a plant really matters to you, you should start it in a pot and keep it moving, keep it transplanting. If I've learned anything from plant production over the years, keep things moving. Don't let something get root bound in a particular pot where you're waiting to plant it out four to six weeks later. Move it to the next size if it's going to be that long. Um, and in a pot, you have more control over the environment. If we're going to get mm -hmm. 106 degrees on Saturday and you have this little plant in a seedling tray, well, you can bring it closer to the house. You can, you know, you, you can give it a little little protection during that extreme heat or especially wind out in the garden daily watering and so and maybe twice a day if it's hot and windy that's just why a lot of us start things in containers and also fewer predators <laughs> that come up yeah. close to the house than that are willing to wander through your garden at two in the morning and eat your babies you know, and planting seeds in the summer is actually better for not having birds because the birds that come uh, here in the winter, uh, there's a lot more ground feeders. In the summer, there's not too many birds that are out there looking for the, the seeds. Yes, there are long Mostly time listeners. things like scrub jays looking for nuts. Long-time listeners probably noticed it's been a couple months since I went on a rant about white crowned sparrows. Because they're not here anymore, <laughs> Dawn. They'll be back in the fall. Okay, Don't worry. Quick story here. A young, la a young lady came into our garden center wearing a t-shirt that had a beautiful print of a white crowned sparrow on it. And my staff person looks at it and goes, oh, what kind of bird is that? She didn't, the, the person wearing the t-shirt did not get the, the reaction she was expecting when she said, oh, this is a white crowned sparrow. And both staff people and I go, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? I study these. Don't show Don. <laughs> I study these. That's my area of wildlife biology. I said, well, we had a little chat about white crowned sparrows. <laughs> and you know, Don, I think that um, I think you have a curse on you because they don't do that much damage for everybody. No, just you have a particularly just, attractive area. Just people who are growing lettuce, peas, seedling greens, things like that. But you know, I don't, I don't need to rant about them now. You're right. What's busy out there right now in the garden? The jays and mockingbirds. Anytime mm -hmm. I walk down my row of tomatoes, which is a long row of tomato cages, six foot tall cages, there's mm -hmm. a mockingbird or jay, and they seem to overlap quite a bit hopping down the cages one by one, dodging in. Picking off your tomato worms. Uh, picking off whatever, yeah. I haven't seen a leaf-footed bug on my tomatoes all season. I'm sure they're out there, but not for long. So those guys are fine. They're noisy. They're moderately annoying, but, you know, they don't do any harm. Okay. Well, except for the plums. Okay. <laughs>
let's let's get off of this and get on to something else. Here's another question. Um, David writes, hi, Lois and Don. Love the show and have been listening for several years, learning much along the way. Thank you, David. We love to hear things like that. So even if you don't have a question, anybody, feel free to give <laughs> us a call. Tell us how wonderful we are. We, we get off and I do at least. Don just laughs. Um, so David writes, I have a question about the long-term care of plants in larger containers. The attached image shows three citrus plants in my backyard in various pots. Yep. The one in the foreground, a lemon, has been in the same 20-inch wide terracotta pot for about 15 years. This lemon is generally fairly productive, although not so much this year. How can I replenish the soil in such a pot? I do add a little high-quality potting soil on the top each year or so and then cover that up with small bark to use as mulch. Do I keep doing this? I'm worried about burying the root flare by adding too much soil. Repotting would be a major chore. Should I fertilize more to make up for the old depleted dirt? I usually give my plants a very small handful of slow-release fertilizer about every other month. I'm up on a hill in Antioch, that's zone 14, and receive about one-fifth of the frosts that you mention for Davis or your farm. Yeah. Thanks from David in Antioch. And the picture uh, well, is a lovely picture showing... Um, and just as you said, large terracotta pots, smaller than a barrel. Yeah, and I do, I maintain lots of things in containers. I have plants that are going to stay in containers their whole life. And I'm referring back to that job I had working in the, the botany department, we were, it was a greenhouse collection. And its basic mission was for us to grow plants for the different classes in the botany and horticulture departments. And to have members of particular families or plants with interesting glands or things like that. And in many cases, these were big subtropical or tropical trees that were never going to be allowed to reach their full potential. We were keeping them in containers, making them look and grow as healthy as possible for the one particular purpose for which we were growing them, the flower structure, the unique gland, something, just to have a representative of a particular family in many cases so that people in the taxonomy classes or the horticulture classes could come in and see examples. There were trees in pots in that greenhouse that had been in the same pot for more than four decades. And they were doing fine, although certainly stunted with respect to their, you know, their, their native range potential. And what we did was we fed them all the time. So the key thing, you can grow any plant in any medium, as long as you provide it the water and nutrients that it needs. And the main nutrient that it needs to continue growth is going to be nitrogen. Uh, you probably should replace some of the other macronutrients and trace elements as well. But what it's going to run out of fastest and most uh, and over the course of a season would run out of more than once if you didn't supply it is nitrogen. There's a bunch of ways to apply that. What we did in that greenhouse was I would mix up these giant vats of fertilizer concentrate, which we then proportioned in with our water. Everything in the greenhouse got fertilized every single time we watered at a very low dosage. In the wholesale nursery industry, there has always been these resin-coated, slow-release fertilizers. The best-known brand out there is called Osmocote, but it's not the only one. And that's a case where they've taken a regular conventional, not organic, but conventional fertilizer, and put it in a porous resin ball that leaches out a little bit of fertilizer each time it's watered over a period of time, anywhere from three to nine months, depending on the particular you know, version of Osmocote or other resin-coated slow-release fertilizer. There's a bunch of different slow-release fertilizers. People who do containers thought these were an amazing innovation when they came on the market 40 years or so ago. And so they're standard for a lot of people growing things in containers who are doing them in 
don't mind using conventional fertilizers because that's what these are. These are not organic. They, they leach a little bit of fertilizer for anywhere from three to nine months, depending on the, the brand. Um, that's one option. Just top dressing with potting soil that contains modern organic fertilizers has worked very well for me. I'll take an inch or two of our highest end potting soil, the ones that were designed for the cannabis market. So they've got bat guano and stuff like that in them, nine to 10% nitrogen sources like that. And I'll put an inch or two on the surface. And I do make an effort to pull it away from the crown a little bit, but you know, burying the root flare with just compost is not usually an issue. First of all, that surface tends to dry out more often than you might think. And so the likelihood of a water mold attacking, which is our biggest concern, Phytophthora attacking at that point of interface, is reduced just by the fact that the surface around the, the root flare dries out. You're, even if you're watering daily, that surface is probably drying out. Second, there's never been much evidence that compost is likely to be a big source of creating conditions favorable for, for Phytophthora. It's more like actual dirt actual soil, burying the crown with actual topsoil of any kind could lead to problems with Phytophthora. I simply haven't seen it happen with bark or compost materials, probably because they disintegrate so quickly and, there's, and they're larger particles. They're just big particle sizes, so there's more air exchange going on right there. And a real simple thing you can do after you put that inch or two on, I do this, is I just wash it away. I'm washing it off the leaves anyway because it's no easy way to put that on there without getting some on the plant. So I just wash it off the leaves, wash it off the stem, wash it away from the, the, uh, the crown and the root flare, and that's fine. And you can do that for a very long time. There's a point at some point where a lemon tree in a pot, you know, you're going to run out of root zone <laughs> or something. But I have seen Meyer lemons in containers for well over a decade, growing well, producing well, stunted with respect to how much growth they're putting on each year because the roots are constrained but doing adequately and um, they can go on for quite a long time that way as long as you keep supplying the nitrogen either in small doses on a regular basis or in the soil that you use as a mulch on the container or by feeding according to the label directions of the fertilizer that you purchase or preferably all of the above because that's typically what you're going to need to do. Okay, so I want to know which direction you want to go. I don't think we're going to get through all of our questions today. Uh, we had more. so much, but is there is there something you really want to talk about? Um, you had one up here where you sent me a link. I opened it up and it says, what technology could reduce heat deaths? And the answer is trees. Yeah. So did and, you want to talk about that? Well, yes. And being on the board of Tree Davis, being someone who sells trees and cares about them and has been watching with some, some disturbing trends of cities and new developments getting away from bigger shade trees. Um, and now we're having heat waves like what happened up in the Pacific Northwest and you know, mm -hmm. what we had here two weeks ago, temperature at around 110, heat wave coming this weekend. A shade tree can make immediate 10 degree temperature difference in its vicinity, 20 degree temperature difference in some instances. And that's not just the shading. You can get shade by building a structure, but it's the evaporative cooling that it provides as well. And the concern we have in Tree Davis, I'm speaking for myself here, but we have discussed this and Tree Commission and Davis and others is we're getting away from 
keeping that big urban canopy going of these big trees, especially in areas with higher density housing, where there's you know, perhaps lower income housing, you end up with more concrete, more roof area, more less shade from these trees. One of the biggest threats, I hate to say this, to shade trees in California now is solar panels required on all new construction. And so that means you can't have a tree within X feet to the south or to the, you know, to, that would ever cast shadow on the solar panels. So we need to be more strategic about our planting of trees. And with these higher intensity heat waves clearly happening, we're getting more questions about how the garden is going to respond. So quickly saying, let's take care of our trees. Please water them. It's a drought. Please expend a little water on the trees. They're for everybody. You know, they benefit the whole community. It doesn't take much to keep them going. They don't need optimal watering. They need adequate watering. They're, I have a customer who's maintaining 10 trees that Tree Davis planted. Tree Davis is a nonprofit that plants trees around the area. He's, he's wheeling out five-gallon buckets of water um, and giving one or two to each of these 10 trees once a week. This guy is doing this because he cares about the urban tree canopy on the street where he has an apartment complex and there's no sprinklers out there. So he's being the sprinkler. So that's a simple thing. And I, I told him one thing you could do is just get some of those buckets, drill a couple holes in the bottom, smaller holes, fill them with water, set it at the base of the tree, walk away, let it, let it do its thing. We appreciate that. We appreciate people who are doing that. We really need to explain over and over again that as heat intensity increases during heat waves, trees will be one of our simplest ways to mitigate that, particularly in areas where there's a significant urban heat island effect. Pivoting. And trees, and trees are some of the things that are in greatest threat yeah. by people conserving and our droughts and all that stuff. Yeah, one whole division, uh, one whole group of uh, the folks on the board at Tree Davis are working on climate-ready trees and broadening that to climate-ready landscapes. And what that means is testing the native and the nearby native and the non-native species that are going to be suitable where droughts are going to be more frequent, temperatures are going to be more extreme. So we'll have more information about that further down the road. But then the immediate issue of a heat wave coming up this weekend this was a very prolific week, and we really thank you all to our listeners for sending us questions and, and reports and things, so keep it coming. If you have questions, they can come to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. Very helpful if you tell us roughly where you are, what your USDA zone is, and uh, I see one in there from the Midwest. So we will definitely... Next week, Don. We'll next week. We'll definitely... Adopt, uh, tell you what, next week will be Midwest Gardening Tips. <laughs> I better talk to someone who knows how to garden in the Midwest before then. <laughs> You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.